speaking of being a history major, I do want to start start us off, Liz, with uh, something I noticed as I was preparing for the episode, looking at your resume, and uh, and you have your you graduated from Cornell as a history major, and your senior thesis was, and I quote, "Rhetoric and education in the Italian Renaissance." How often do you use that one as a sports writer? As a sports writer, probably not so much. <laughs> it definitely helped to speak Italian for about three interviews of maybe my 300,000 I've done in my career. <laughs> um, but I will say, Brian, being a history major and writing about a time in the Renaissance, it's, I wanted to simplify the title, but it was really about Jewish and Christian teachers in the Renaissance and how they taught each other and what they learned from one another. So one of the best classes I took at Cornell was really um, trying to understand the uses and abuses of Western civilization and how people see uh, other groups as other and us and them. And I never really left that because I think it's an important way of seeing the world. And it's one of the reasons why I transitioned from being a sports writer to covering immigration. Uh, and I don't think that, especially these days, you ever want to just have an education that is directed towards sports writing or one niche topic. By studying history, we really learn about ourselves today. So I come off with this quip to start the podcast and you already getting in with the deep knowledge. I love oh, the way this so is going. <laughs> Dropping the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to The Other 51. I'm your host, Brian Moritz. I'm joined this week by uh, Liz Robbins, formerly of The New York Times, formerly of a billion other newspapers, author, teacher. Uh, this is where Broadway, we'd call you a multi-hyphenate, which you probably still can. That's not a Broadway-only term. Um, and uh, we had a you know, startup. We had a wonderful conversation a few months ago for an article you did for the Times International piece. And I'm still getting used to, I know we've talked about this, but I'm still getting used to the transition from being a reporter to being someone who's interviewed for stories in the, we had like a almost an hour long conversation. And, you know, I, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I do not, a conversation with me is not a straight line. So we had lots of, lots of twists and turns in that. And to see that great conversation boil down to one sentence in the final paper. And it's not, this is not a you I've, it's happened to me many times. It's kind of like an occupational hazard and it's totally fine, but it's just, it's very weird to be on that end, this end of the interview process. I hear you. And and now I'm on this end. But <laughs> the thing is, you'll all have to ingest, you know, 30 minutes of this. But I will say, Brian, and, and this is part of our craft, you may only see that one quote, but everything we talked about either served as background, confirmed what you said. And I really wanted to make sure that we highlighted you. And in fact, you gave me a wonderful source to talk to and her quotes did not make the cut. So it's an honor. <laughs> to be I think that, you know, and I know you do some teaching as well. And I think that's something that, that in teaching journalism, I think is an important lesson for students, right? Like, A, you don't have to quote interview everybody you interview, you take the best, but also an interview with a source is not, you know, I, I stress this so much. It's not just about getting a quote for your story. It's about that, that background. Can you talk about that? Like, and how much as a reporter, you know, 
you you quote five people, but you talk to 15 and how much and why that is so valuable talking to all those people, even if it doesn't directly make your story. I mean, I I probably made more than my share of extra phone calls. And I still do that because I feel like you're never done with reporting and you're probably never done with writing, right? All writing is rewriting. Deadline forces you to be done. But absolutely, the the more you know, uh, the, the more rich your story will be. Uh, and... I had, I was about to be finished with one story that I wrote this summer, actually on the legacy of Billie Jean King. And I said, my sources aren't diverse enough and I need someone else. And oh my gosh, Phaedra Knight was amazing. A former um, president of the Women's Sports Foundation. She was an international rugby player and now she's doing um, MMF. I mean, just, wow, like amazing. Um, and she brought a perspective that I hadn't had before. And it was such a great quote. So you never know when you finish an interview and say, who else should I talk to? If that person will end up being your lead quote or just background. So how do you kind of on that, we'll get to some of the stuff you've written about in your career in a few minutes, but how do you know when you're writing and when you're interviewing when you're done now, obviously working for a newspaper like deadline is going to drive a thing, right? If yeah. the story is done at six, you got to be kind of be done by four to probably write it up. But absent that, when you're working on a longer term thing, yeah. when you're working on the book that you work, uh, wrote about the New York marathon, how do you know, how do you specifically as a writer know I'm done or I'm as done as I can before I need to start writing as opposed to, because I feel like that can be a procrastination thing too, right? Absolutely. Oh, I got to keep talking. I got to keep researching so I don't have to write the thing. Yeah. And so much of it comes down to organization and clarity of what you want to do. Um, you're right. You could keep saying, no, I just don't have it. You know when there's a hole. So that's a difference. But I will say, uh, if you write out, and this is what I do, I write out all the people I've spoken with, and then I write out either the one phrase on a notebook that they said that I want to include, and then I see what I have. And basically, the deadline will get you writing. But no, you don't want to do it forever. Uh, I, and I think that is what you just learn over time. Like, okay, I've got what I've got, and if I realize at the end I don't have enough, then I'll get more. I don't think I've ever been in that position except for maybe one time that I spoke about like, nope, just didn't feel right. So it goes by feel, but it also is a is a show of maturity and clarity that you know what your story is about before you actually launch into the interviews. So looking at your career, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on is we, I think you mentioned something about covering the first year of the WNBA in our chat. And I'm like, OK, we, we got something here. And looking at it, you were working in Cleveland uh, in the late mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And you know, obviously the WNBA started there. That was just such a a wild time, not just for Cleveland sports, but Cleveland, right? Because that was like when the flats were booming and I was kind of like yes. Cleveland's like boomtown. So what was Cleveland and Cleveland? That was when the Browns moved and the whole Art Modell thing happened. So what was what was Cleveland like for a sports writer back at that time? It was amazing. So I got to Cleveland at the end of 94. So essentially I started 95 to 2000. That's what I covered. And it was, you're exactly right. 
So 95, the, um, the, the Browns leave. Belichick was the coach, by the way. And so the Browns leave in the middle of the night. Um, and then in 97, uh, you know, they built Gundarina. That's what they called it. And the Jake. I still go by all the old names. Right. I, I, it's, I can't even remember what they're up to now. Um, it was an amazing time to be at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Uh, it was a new house paper. They had a lot of money. And we had a wonderful sports editor, Roy Hewitt, who was also, he had so much foresight to see that women's sports were really on the vanguard. So at the one hand, we're all hands on deck for World Series 95 and 97 for the Indians. Um, but he also sent me to a lot of Olympics. I covered the entire 99 or the, the women's world cup and the 99ers. Um, there are a few games I had to miss, but I, I was there, uh, at the Rose bowl. So yeah, it was an incredible time. In fact, I just saw a duffel bag that said all-star year. So it houses my softball equipment, soccer pads. It's basically all of the um weekend warrior sports equipment <laughs> that i've ever had and it still is all-star year so all the employees were given this and um i never forget because the rock and roll hall of fame opened in right. right yep yeah and the nba all-star game was the 50 greatest players and they had this party at the brand new rock and roll hall of fame and here we are attending it it was amazing and this is the only time I was starstruck in my career because growing up in Philadelphia, I love Dr. J and I see him lining up with all of the legends and I'm about ready to go out. And I said something that no sports writer should ever say, but I will embarrass myself and say, if you ran for mayor, if you had run for mayor, I would have voted for you. <laughs> And, you know, Turquoise was then next to him and she just laughed. She's like, oh, I wish you had been there. I wish you, you know, we're glad he didn't run. It was just so funny. I mean, it was exactly what he was not expecting. In that <laughs> so that was that was the time. Those five years were so formative, not only for my career, but for Cleveland. And then, oh, I won't ever forget this. I covered the Browns the year that they came back. They won two games that year. But I got to cover Tim Couch, yep. who was, God, the number one draft pick, probably starting a line of awful draft picks for um, Cleveland. But I got to cover him like nonstop in New York for draft weekend. And I even got to fly on a private plane with him back. So, yeah, lots of fun stories. But I have to say those were the golden days of journalism, Cleveland the flats really great jazz actually mm -hmm. sixth street anyway i miss it. It, it 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 is incredible to hear and remember back to that time and the stories of reporters and what you got to do and what you got to cover and you know what it, it's funny especially now we don't need to recap rehash everything going on in the media industry right we know where we know how things are but and I remember like in the 90s because I was in college then and just graduating yeah. and like, oh, it is nothing like it was back in the good old days of the 70s. Right. And you would hear all these stories about what it used to be like and how 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 rough we have it now. And and, you know, 
perspective as always, but that was such an interesting time for, for newspapers because it was that last kind of golden age, I think, of of that kind of, of of that coverage and that staffing model, really, where you just had all these people. Well, and I didn't always cover pro sports, right? Mm -hmm. So I covered the Browns. I was the third person on the Browns in 99. But for those first two years, I did, or three years, I covered a lot of small college football. Um, London Fletcher, you remember him yeah. in the NFL? I covered him at John Carroll University. Very nice. Um, you know, I did a lot of that uh, Case Western University mm -hmm. uh, coverage. So I think you're not seeing this model anymore because when I started my career at St. Pete Times, now the Tampa Bay Times, I covered high school sports. So that's what it used to be, right? Mm -hmm. High school sports, and then it would be small college sports, big college, some Ohio State, and then it would get into pros. So it was very tiered. But I also covered the Canton-Akron Indians, right? I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the old rickety Thurman Munson Stadium. I've got lots of stories about that. Um, it was a time where you had beat writers, so much so that, as you mentioned, I was the WNBA beat writer for the Cleveland Rockers. I actually broke the story along with Mel Greenberg of the Philadelphia Inquirer, that this league was starting. Awesome. So the two of us had this. And of course, you know, it was really before all the internet stuff. It was, it made the internet. And I covered the Cleveland Rockers, like Lynette Woodard and Michelle Edwards, and obviously Don Staley. And I saw the beginnings of that league. I saw the ABL fold, um, the other league, and I mean, Don and I were just kind of reminiscing about how far we've come. And um, it's pretty amazing from that 96 Olympics where the basketball team won, the soccer, women's soccer team won in the debut, softball won, gymnastics, Carrie Strug. And now, Brian, we're getting to this is the first year in Paris where um, women will be 50 percent of the field. Nice. How do you break a story that a league is forming? That's that that's a scoop beyond all scoops, I feel like. You have to have sources, of course. <laughs> but but think about this, right? I never said to myself, oh, I'm with the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Most of the time I got that what? The who? The plane? <laughs> the what? And, you know, if I said it was the newspaper that Susan Sarandon put over her head in Rocky Horror Picture Show, I know I'm dating <laughs> It was. Go check it out. It's really I, it, I, I know the scene. Yeah. You know the scene, right? Yeah. But um, I never approached my job that way. Like, I'm not at the New York Times. It was only until I got to the Times where people actually call me back because I was from the Times. But I just, um, I charged hard and uh, I heard something was coming. I was talking to lots of people and I wrote it. I honestly, I'm sure I could find it in the database somewhere, but I don't know how great it was. I mean, I ha I've had interesting scoops over the last 30 years of my career have they been well one changed policy with the government so I, i'm kind of pleased about that one so that 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 was the nice segue into why what i wanted to ask you so after working in sports you you switch over to covering immigration and other news stuff at the times and i'm yeah. going to read this line right off your off of your resume because it's the most impressive right. brag i've ever heard broke news that changed national immigration policy for daca recipients whose renewals were lost in the mail i mean there are scoops and there are scoops, right? But I, I, you know, the, it, it's not often you get a, a to break a story that a changes national policy, but b kind of changes national policy 
for the good, right? That helps people, yeah. that, like boost people. So tell us about that story. Tell us about reporting that and, and kind of how that all, that story came together. And I was just reminded of this, uh, my dear friend, Dara Lind, uh, who's very active on Twitter. Um, she remembered it on Twitter, like this weekend, uh, saying this is one of my favorite nice. scoops of all time. It was rare also because the government never changes policy. But think about this. In 2017, then President Trump cancels the one benefit, really, even though it was temporary, for um, immigrants who were brought here as children. So deferred action for childhood arrivals. They had no choice in the matter. Um, and Obama's administration puts this in place in 2012. And it's always been under kind of threat that it would go away. Well, he cancels it. September 5th, but he allows people to still renew. Uh, and they had one month to do so. So how many times have we sent something in and the, the mail just lost it, right? It's so frustrating. So people are spending up to $400 um, DACA recipients and they sent it, they have the receipts and the post office, mostly in Chicago area, lost it or they kept it in their lockbox. This was not the fault, but I found out that this was happening in New York and then apparently it was happening everywhere. And I had had by this point on the beat two years, a network of sources and lawyers who would say, this happened to my client, this happened to my client. And in the beginning of the day, I heard about it, it was 40 people. By the afternoon, it was 90 people. And then, uh, Cut to a week later, it was 2,000 people, and it was affecting people all over the country. And at that point, there were still um, people in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services who realized that, like, they messed up. And so at first they said, yep, sorry, you're out of luck. You know, it didn't get there in time. You're you're going to be, you know, perhaps deported. It, it, you, you'll be subject to deportation if you know um there was a risk for that everyone knew it was unfair the post office is a federal agency anyway uh i wrote a series of stories that showed how bad this was and and at the end of the week the government said we are allowing people to reapply if they have these receipts and we are giving them their status back I think what was so novel is that the government had never admitted it was wrong, especially in those first anxious months when Trump was making all of these changes and there was the Muslim ban one and two and then three. It was an onslaught. I, I didn't sleep and write for weeks. It was like covering the NBA playoffs. I was never home. Friends had to send me socks in the mail because I didn't have time to do laundry. <laughs> but this was, this was small. But Brian, this is the whole theory of how I report and why I want to be a journalist. I got several emails and text messages from people affected saying that I changed their lives. And mm. um, it it isn't about the big picture sometimes. It's really how you can make a difference in humanizing a story. Mm. That 
I mean, I yeah, we've I think we've all who've been reporters have gotten like the one email like those not at that level, but that email like, you know, about the story. But to do that on that level, um, unbelievable. And I'll have a link to the story in the show notes oh so Thank people you. can check it out. Um, you mentioned you had a network in the two years from when you had gotten on the immigration beat to the story, you had kind of built up a network of sources and. You know, I'm going to guess that U.S. Open tennis and immigration policy don't overlap very much in the source category. I'm sure there is some. So I'm curious, you know, after working in sports for so long and getting into the news side and then on the on the immigration beat, especially with the Trump era, with the Trump policy, which, you know, not the friendliest to The New York Times. How do you how do you go about building sources on a brand new beat, especially one that's a bureaucratic like the government and b kind of so fraught? politically and with people who may not want to talk because their identity and if they're here undocumented there might be how do you how do you navigate all of those to build sources in such a short period of time and and you're exactly right people did not like the new york times and before as a sports writer when they were commenting on the times politics i was like oh, i'm a sports writer it's okay you mm-hmm. know, don't worry about it uh, i cover the knicks mm-hmm. oh never mind <laughs> i shouldn't say that because that's another <laughs> issue but right, I covered tennis. It's funny because these two sides of my life, they're only about a few immigration reporters who are huge NBA fans, like Hamed Aziz, who's now at the New York Times. He was a big fan of my sports writing, which I really appreciated. But really, the twain did not meet. So I did what I always did. And um, I studied. I had lunches with people, dinners with people. I went to conferences. I learned the laws. And it's not like you know, learning defenses and plays and everything. Although it's not that dissimilar, right? Hmm. You know, I'd go and sit down with assistant coaches on the NBA teams that I covered and understand their plays. They'd be diagramming it on napkins. And because I love that I played, I played basketball and, you know, our double stack did not exactly, um, it wasn't exactly what the the high post um, was doing for the nets, but I, I'm curious. And I think that's what all journalists need to be. You need to be curious. You need to be open. But you also need to understand, I won't say both sides, but I covered a rally when Trump was speaking in Long Island. Now, remember, this was all after there were all these kids who were killed by the gang. It was a really volatile time. And the the Trumpers or the Republicans had flags and they were on one side, there were about 30 of them and there were about 400 um, anti-Trump folks. And Mm -hmm. Trump is basically inside this arena telling people that um, police should be beating them and treating them like with a paddy wagon. All this is going on. But I spoke to a Trump supporter and he didn't want to. I mean, I, I knew there was police, so I was okay. They were shouting horrible things at journalists. And I talked to him and because I wanted to understand why he was so anti-immigrant. And he talked about being a construction foreman. And he said it made it harder because people were coming in and there was really wage abuse for immigrants. And he said he, he was having trouble getting people to his, his work site. So I listened. Mm-hmm. And I think he was really surprised. Mm-hmm. So I just giving that background of mm-hmm. working for a so-called liberal newspaper, um, but also knowing that I'm just me and I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to talk to them and hear what they have to say. 
how do you how can a reporter a young reporter kind of turn this teaching wise how can they yeah build their curiosity because that comes up a lot in this in this podcast talking to to writers and journalists you know curiosity is so important and it is how can how can a young reporter you had to say how can they be more curious because that just sounds like be more curious but what are some of the ways that they can kind of build that as a professional tool as a muscle to kind of to to get that aspect of the job and get that aspect of reporting improve that aspect of their reporting you have to be in your community. You have to show up. So whether that is showing up super early for games, talking to fans, talking to the people who are part of the team management who may know things, it is showing up, waiting for people to talk. It's when we say curious, I said, okay, learning laws, right? Going to conferences, hanging out. I mean, look, we're reporters. We love to eat. So take people out. You know, I do think that there is still um, money to buy a person a coffee uh, and show them who you are away from the telephone. Uh, get out of the internet <laughs> <laughs> and go IRL, as they say. Uh and yes, reading is super important. That's why I have all my books behind me. Some of them are Snoopy books. Yep. <laughs> um, I also think, Brian, people do tend to take themselves so seriously and you need to have a sense of humor. You need, in, in, and I say this having covered like horrible things for immigration, but just be real. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, go into the territory where I'm telling writers and reporters and journalists to do everything and market themselves you know we have <laughs> controversy with that um do the work show up make the extra phone call show you care by listening so it's not just curious being curious but mm -hmm. it's also listening speaking of curious i am curious about one thing in working covering immigration for two years or however uh, long you three, covered it, four, three years. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially during, you know, it's not just covering immigration, it's covering immigration during the Trump administration. Yeah. How, how did you keep your mental health intact? I guess is the best question. Like you see these horrible things, you hear these horrible things, you know, all this stuff happening. And while working at the New York Times, when the president is attacking the New York Times every day, how do you kind of deal with that you know that's a very different than larry brown being mad at something you wrote about his defense you know it's a very different level no no no. larry brown is the perfect example right okay There's okay great detroit news picture i wish i still had it that girl is an evil evil woman is what he said <laughs> because i broke the story that he was you know while coaching detroit was looking to move to cleveland no kidding and he never <laughs> forgave me i love larry brown thank you i mean he hates me and i will hate him right because <laughs> Um, and he, it, you know, I had my sources. So, um, I think it's a really good question. And to be very honest, for those of us who came up in the nineties and in the two thousands and still now we really weren't given that leeway. How, right. how do we take care of ourselves? I covered the summer of family separation and, uh, it was very, very difficult. And I think as journalists, we are so attuned to going, going, going and 
um, it took me a while to process it. Uh, the day that the government again said, okay, we're going to reunite some of these parents. I remember, I think I bought crayons and I brought it to the um, place where some of the kids were and the families were coming. And I mean, seeing the father, fathers picking up their children, not knowing where they were for four, mm -hmm. four weeks straight was really heart-wrenching. Um, and I do, I am so appreciative of how journalism is now taking care of mental health, because to be honest, I don't think the New York Times did that at all. Mm -hmm. It was really go, go, go. I wrote probably four to five times a week. Um, there was always a, a, a breaking story. I'm also dealing with lawyers and lawsuits and the government uh, who was attacking me for what I was writing. You know, Stephen Miller's now wife would be calling me up and yelling at me. So kind of like Larry Brown, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to intimidate you. That girl's an evil, evil woman. I mean, yeah, actually kind of the same thing. It's all, it's all training. And um, I think you have to have your outlets. Uh, as an ex-lacrosse player, uh, I now really can't run that much. So I cycle. Mm -hmm. That helps. So we're going to switch it to a better, uh, more li li livelier, light topic to close out here. Because I ask everybody on the podcast this question. So I'll uh, end it with you. What's the best thing that you've read lately? Ah, oh, my gosh. I just finished All the Sinners Bleed um, by Y.A. Cosby. Okay. Oh, my gosh. What I mean, you know, it's a good book mm -hmm. when you stay up really late finishing it. Um, and just so you know, I, I it was funny. I was talking about this on my in my spin class the other day, and I said I usually read women's fiction, and yet this was a detective story in the South, and I just thought it was incredible. It's been on a lot of best books. Um, definitely read that. But the the book before was Roman stories, so this goes back to your very first question, um, and this was. Um, a book that was written in Italian and then English, uh, by Lahiri, you can check it out. It was short stories and it's about the decaying beauty of Rome, but also immigrants who um, have made Rome immigrants from an expats. I know we have a difference, but how they see this city as a refuge. Um, and the troubles that are going through the city that we've seen for 3000 years exist. Um, so yes, I try and read absolutely everything. I love that question, but I mean, for your readers, any detective story that also deals with um, racial Ooh. tensions and the society um, as we know it, uh, I think, that's what I really love, but I also am watching a lot of streaming Ooh, TV. What's your favorite too, right now? So, what's the best thing you've watched lately? Let's... Um, yep, yep. Um, well, Killers of the Flower Moon, but also watching on Apple, um, Criminal Record. I love Jumbo. Oh, so good. So yes, I could recommend a lot of things. I'm keeping very busy. Um, and I know we could have talked forever about the moment for mm -hmm. women's sports and I, I just 
hopefully this was helpful to all of your readers and listeners and um and your students so yes you can find me at bylizrobbins.com you can send me a note well, well we, like we will do this again because we didn't even get into philadelphia and i spent a lot of time in philly in the late no, 90s and early 2000s so we, we we we'll have a reprise where we just talk philly stuff and annoy the mets fans and oh, oh i'd love to annoy mets fans. brian the one thing that we didn't talk about was how we both were covering that that's right overtime game of bonaventure in cleveland which was my first stop it it was not oh my gosh it was all i can say is thank god it was a noon tip so here's the funny (laughs) thing about that for being a noon tip for you so this was 1999 so i'm barely online at that point it was 2000 2000. it was 99 2000 season that's right and it was the first game in kentucky 85 80 over saint bonaventure in cleveland um and what what i hated that it was a noon game because working for the only in times herald and we were an afternoon paper so people were yeah people oh, were no. getting my game preview <laughs> as after they had watched this probably the game of the first round right this double overtime game bonaventure should have won in regulation Incredible. they should have followed tayshawn prince me and mike vaccaro will will we'll talk your ear off about following tayshawn prince but um i know ah uh, that was i mean that was my first job out of college that was my first year out of college covering that team and so I'll ask because I'm a Bonaventure person and we'll keep this going just for a little bit here. So your what was that like? Is that was such a pivotal moment for Bonaventure basketball and for coming the, the comeback and all that. What was that like covering covering what was that? What do you remember about that game? What's your takeaway from what was your takeaway from that game and what it meant? Like any epic game, you're wondering <laughs> how do I write this? But you're also in awe of it happening. And um it's like, yes, all right. How am I going to write this? This is super fun. And you just want to, I think I wrote about yep. the free throws that, you know, that's how, sorry. But, you know, that's, it was, that was the, that yep. was the moment that's the game. And uh, so you want to really make this big moment mm-hmm. a smaller moment. And I think that's how I got through it. Honestly, I have no idea. I probably overwrote the heck out of it. And the editors were also saying, thank God it was an <laughs> early day, even though they put it on the web. But I'm so sorry you had well, an afternoon file. Well, I had, probably like, no, I didn't. Oh, we didn't even try to get it yet because the paper had already fi- had already published. So my my next day, my game story was the, you've already known this for 24 hours. You've got, is, uh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> I know. And now everything's yeah. changed since then too, because you know, you'd be posting oh, yeah. on Instagram and Twitter. So. But games like that stay with you. And that's why we right. cover sports. That that that's what makes yeah. it all worthwhile. Well, this so. this was great. We'll rent we'll we'll do this again. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brian. So much fun. Bye bye.